0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the New Books Network. My name is Lee Pierce, your host for New Books and Language, and I am thrilled today to have Luke Winslow here discussing his new book, Fresh Off the Presses 2020, entitled American Catastrophe Fundamentalism, Climate Change, Gun Rights, and the Rhetoric of Donald J. Trump and a Partridge in a Pear Tree. No, I'm just kidding. That's not <laughs> the title. All right. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about the book. It's from Ohio State University Press. We are loving Ohio State University Press right now. They're putting a bunch of their books, including Luke's in their BiblioVault, complimentary for the pandemic. I will tell you more at the end about how to get a copy if you have a subscription, and also how to get one for your local library or a personal copy for your office shelf, um, which I guess is now a home office shelf. So about the book. Uh, So on the face of it, most of us would agree, right? That catastrophe is harmful. And avoiding catastrophe is key to our survival and making progress. And yet, like we have climate change, uh, 30,000 more Americans are killed by guns each year. And we've got Donald J. Trump, the president, creating political chaos with all of his rage tweets. And, um, you know, this book was written a little while ago and still yet even today, right, Obamagate and the Liberate Virginia, right, rage tweets, capital letters, the whole deal. So American Catastrophe explores such examples to argue that, in fact, we live in an age where catastrophe not only functions as a dominant organizing rhetoric, but further, it's an appealing and unifying force for many communities across America. So Luke Winslow is here with us today. He's going to talk about all kinds of fun concepts like rhetorical homology and how that can understand, how that can help us understand The way that catastrophe helps appeal and unite Americans from ecological, cultural, and different political spheres. So I'm excited to have Luke with us today. He's given me permission to call him Luke, not Dr. Winslow. Luke, are you there?
1: I am, yes. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. I love this book. And man, kudos to you. Do you just like, did this book come out? And then every time you see Trump's Twitter, you're just like, oh, I'm so right about everything.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it kind of like, it's a, it's a, as you mentioned in the title, it's a, like a dark premise, um, for some dark times. Uh, and so, yeah, wallowing around in some of this for so long. Requires uh you know you got to come up for air once in a while so. Hmm.
0: Yes. Well, I like to think of myself as the air, and I like to think of you <laughs> as the dark premise.
1: Yeah, so yeah. we
0: will we will play well together today because I uh, if you don't laugh you cry right. Okay, so right. will you tell us more about like who is Luke Winslow and how did the book show up and um you know w- what are you really excited for people to get out of this book?
1: Well, I hope the book can equip people to. Um, See the rhetorical dimensions of their lives in in a richer, more clear way. I mean, I think that's the central purpose of a lot of of what a lot of intellectuals, um, academics, scholars, and journalists do. Um, you know, I'm keen on like a like a flashlight metaphor. That my hope is the book shines a light on things that we don't fully understand, and we don't fully comprehend. And of course, the presidency for many of us, the presidency of Donald Trump, is just. You know, Exhibit One A for just you know baffling policies and baffling public conversations. But um, that's just one example. I, I was originally drawn to the topic because of climate change, and you know, as our planet burns, Americans in particular seem unwilling or unable to to do anything about it, and I. Wanted to know more about why, and that was the original impetus for the book. Um, but that same kind of an idea could be applied to how Americans react and respond to gun violence, and um, as we, you know, talk today at the end of May, um, the coronavirus is, is another vivid example of just something that, like, on the surface, is baffling and and uh, confusing and you know how does the richest nation in the history of the world handle something like this so poorly that um i don't know about you but i'm I'm kind of drawn to those paradoxes and that's that's where the book uh comes from i was a i guess i still am for another few days a professor of rhetorical studies at san diego state um but i'm joining the faculty at baylor university um
0: (gasps) I have some people I love at Baylor. That's going to be so fun for you. I'm excited. Yeah, uh,
1: I am too. It's a it's a big move. And of course, we didn't, you know, when I interviewed and got the offer and all that, I didn't know there was a global pandemic coming. Um, so that's uh, added some uncertainty to the whole move. But Yeah, I got, you know, we're, we're selling our house here in California now and moving out to Waco in the next couple of weeks, in fact.
0: Wonderful. Well, not, a, you know, I mean, for better or worse, the transition is happening. So I guess we'll just wish you the best of luck under Thank the circumstances uh, to bring it back to some stuff you said. I think what I found most interesting about this book is, is, as you already mentioned, you drew across a lot of what I mean, this is a really brave book because most people tend to go real deep on a single topic, right? You get one book on climate change, you get one book on gun rights. Um, and in your case, you actually pull together. It's almost like coalition building. You show mm. some of the common threads among these different case studies. Uh, that I think in, you know, one of the problems that they've had is like, they can't form coalitions. So you see climate change people, especially we just had Earth Day, April 22nd. um, And it was like, you saw the Earth Day people trying to get some traction with other events happening and COVID. But they just kept getting kind of steamrolled by these corporate half-assed, oh, Lego definitely believes in Earth Day, even though like, there's literally nothing more damaging to climate than just like stuff like Legos, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of like, as a (laughs) because it's a total consumer commodity. It's entirely non-sustainable, non-organic, and and serves absolutely no, there's no way for it to kind of feed back into environmental support. So I I really appreciated the book for being able to draw across all of those case studies. And and one of the ways you do that is by talking about this concept of rhetorical homology. So I don't know if you want to talk about that or how you discovered the connections between the case studies, but that's where the book starts. And I thought just a great kicking off point for the interview.
1: Yeah. The book, um, like, Initially, you know, the launch point is that it's it's a book about a problem, and the problem is that we don't have competent uh, vocabulary to talk about some of our most pressing social, economic, and political issues. Like our our words are bad, and um, like I said, my initial interest was like bad words about climate change, but as I got into focusing not just on ecological damage, but on how we talk about it, it seemed that there were some clear connections or patterns, these other complicated social issues. And that's where, you know, as you mentioned, you know, in the title, the titles are really unwieldy. It's it's hard to get out because the subtitle, Christian Fundamentalism, Anti-Environmentalism, Gun Rights Messaging, and the Administration of Dr. Trump, and the Partridge in the Pear Tree, attempts to like cast this wide net because it's not a book so much about a, a topic as it is about the problem. And the problem is that we don't have very good words to talk about challenging challenging social issues. So the tool that I use to illuminate those words is the rhetorical homology. And homology is not a word that we use often in our daily conversations, but i found that uh, a helpful point of comparison is to think about a well or like an aquifer um so you have this this aquifer and the homology tries to explain how disparate various um, people and organizations draw from the same aquifer so if there's this aquifer that's defined by catastrophe what i try to do in the book is to show how anti-environmentalists and gun rights advocates and supporters of trump and christian fundamentalists all draw from that same rhetorical well another way to say that is they're all they're disparate you know they're fundamentally distinct or dissimilar entities right like climate change is not gun rights but if you look closely at the patterns the arguments the language that they deploy there's kind of this shared area of common ground that i i refer to as catastrophe
0: that's you have quite the skill with metaphors, my friend. It's almost like you might <laughs> study rhetoric.
1: <laughs> well, there's, Still, I, mean, I
0: appreciate it. It's, it's, you know, it's helpful, right? It's helpful to process ideas. It's like the third metaphor you've dropped in under ten minutes. I love it.
1: Well, yeah, background in rhetoric, right? And, and more specifically, just when when you're dealing with concepts like neoliberalism and you know, rhetorical homology and ideology and hegemony, like. We can talk about that stuff, but we also have to be able to teach it to undergrads, and we also have to be able to make mm. connections to people outside of academia. So, and I'm I'm drawn heavily from my graduate program because I went to, I got my I earned a PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, and when I arrived arrived there in 2005, and I went to Texas to were study. You, were
0: you pre Josh Gunn?
1: Josh Gunn arrived the same time I did. Oh,
0: you so got he, to work with my the love of my
1: life. Yeah, and the awesome
0: Yes, just he, my favorite.
1: He came as a, an assistant professor from LSU the same year that I arrived as a as a graduate wow. student. So I didn't you know, they kind of protected him from sure, uh, sure. graduate students. So I didn't get to work too closely with him. Um but yeah, having him there was just wonderful. Um
0: so so what does that experience do for the way that you are thinking in this book?
1: Well, Barry Brummett, who I ended up, who I Mm. went out there to work with, um, had written a book on rhetorical homology in 2004. And so when I arrived in 2005, he was kind of sick of the topic at the time, but I was, you know, like an eager grad student trying to make a positive impression. So I was all over, you know, his new book. And I didn't fully understand it because it's a relatively complicated concept. It took some years to really understand, but um, I heard him talk about the homology without using that term so much. And so you're, you're you know, reference to metaphors and comparisons, kind of trying to learn from that, that um, if we don't use the term very much on a daily basis, well, we can draw from like, you know, similar terms that are basically serving the same function. And so I was kind of interested in the idea because I thought it was a useful, critical tool. You know, in grad school, you're always told to you know, theorize, 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 right? Like no one cares about your topic. No one cares about you. The only way to have a, an impact is to provide some sort of larger conceptual methodological or, or theoretical contribution. And that's particularly unique to the you know, grad school world. But I also found that there, that the rhetorical homology was a great, you know, like opening up a, a toolbox a great toolkit for understanding, really pressing social challenges. And so I wrote a couple articles um, using the rhetorical homology. And I drew some comparisons across um, like grant writing and evangelical Christianity um, and neoliberalism. And like I said a little bit earlier, ultimately I kind of had this tool rhetorical homology. And I found it usefully explained that broad, like you said, that broad coalition of audiences that are drawn together by catastrophe.
0: Yeah. And and I think before we get into the the sort of like the, the, I think the more optimistic sense, which is like the the potential for coalition building, you mentioned earlier that a sentence I really love, which is, um, in fact, I will be tweeting it later, which is that, we just don't have the vocabulary to, or, or, and by don't have, I mean, sometimes it's like willingly don't choose um, and sometimes just don't know is available and sometimes hasn't been invented yet. The vocabulary to think about these, way, these, uh, these issues in, um, in ways that might move the needle on some solutions, right? And so do you maybe have an example or so when did you, when did you kind of come to understand that that was a problem or is that just something you've always known?
1: Well that's a great question i'm a I'm a christian and my uh my dad is a minister, a Methodist minister, and my mom is a theology professor at azusa pacific university and my that grandfather, must have been a
0: very interesting house to grow up in
1: it was absolutely <laughs> um, My grandfather was also a minister my great grandfather was also a minister so i I grew up very familiar with kind of american christian public conversations and so The idea that, now I want to be real specific with the terms, this is not what all Christians think, but there is a a significant percentage of American Christians who have this um, apocalyptic apocalyptic outlook on the world that um, requires things to get really, really bad in order for Jesus to return, in order for the second coming. Now, me and my family reject that, but, you know, growing up in the community, I was definitely aware of it. And so that's where, you know, if you piece together this idea that you, you are kind of yearning for apocalyptic catastrophes with like the scient- overwhelming scientific evidence that the world is burning you can then start to see what we would refer to as a missing warrant that you know if uh scientists tell us that the earth is warming and a way to redress that warming and the catastrophe that is already happening and will will continue to happen the only way to redress that is to stop burning fossil fuels which means we have to change public policy we have our we have our evidence and we have our claim, our solution. But if you're not worried about the planet burning, if you're, and all of the social, economic, and political upheaval that that will cause, well, mo- what motivation do you have to change your behavior personally? And then collectively, what motivation do you have to support politicians and legislations that will redress climate change? and so that was a i felt like a huge understudied problem in terms of our public conversations and how how we talk about social problems because there's this assumed warrant that we are all like drawn together by the best obtainable version of the truth by shared human progress and by our like collective aversion to catastrophe right We don't want 30,000 Americans to die because of gun violence. We don't want the corona pandemic to kill 100,000 Americans. We don't want the planet to burn. And so we're going to do something about it. But that whole doing something about it relies on the premise that we want shared human progress, that we want things to actually get better. and. For a significant and uh, kind of unrecognized, unacknowledged percentage of Americans, that premise is just not there. That premise is just not motivating.
0: Well, and that's sort of an interesting twist because it, sometimes the problem is you don't have the language. And sometimes it's, you know, you have language and it is, it is myopic in the sense that this idea of uh, right. Of, of almost yeah. like wanting the impending doom because it satisfies a kind of desire. Uh, it forecloses the possibility that you could think about things from a different perspective. So that's, that's fascinating. See, Yeah.
1: You have the, yeah. you, the, the, language is, is there to, um,
0: to give you one view.
1: Yeah. And in this case, give one
0: to, solution, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. To, to paralyze you, in the face of catastrophe, the language is there to, and we're hearing this right now as we talk about the coronavirus. I mean, think about the language that we use to, that, that some use to talk about the coronavirus um, propelling us toward becoming a better and stronger country. Donald Trump and Mike Pence talk about this. David Brooks of the New York Times talks a lot about this that we're going to find this silver lining in terms of the coronavirus and, and we're going to come out of it stronger. Like wait, hold on, really? No, like our lives are all now going to be worse off and harder, and that's just for the survivors. Life is going to get worse because of this coronavirus catastrophe, and yet, from the top down, from really influential politicians and thought leaders, we have this vocabulary that that just kind of forces us to focus on the good that will come out of it. And what I found is very similar words, very similar vocabularies are, are used to describe other you know, catastrophic dimensions of our lives. So you're right. I mean, it's not like there is no language. The problem is there's language, but it's not language that will help us improve public policy. It's the exact opposite. It's language that will facilitate you know, const- uh, 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 devastation.
0: Well, and the other thing sort of you point to is, and I, I love talking about this. So you talked about paradoxes earlier. I'm very attracted yeah. to paradoxes. And I think one of the things that, uh, and I, you know, I grew up with, a, with a, a minister, grandmother, and so that saturated that entire yeah. part of my family. Similar kinds of things, similar frameworks, is that they're very, they all point in one direction and they don't permit of a kind of being able to think multiple thoughts at once. And so Scott Fitzgerald wrote after the Depression, he has this great essay called The Crack-Up. And um, I'm not in the habit of like over-quoting people like Scott Fitzgerald, but he wrote in The Crack-Up that the mark of an intelligent person is the ability to think two uh, contradictory thoughts, right, and continue to move forward. And so after the Depression, you have people thinking that everything is is. Fucked, right? And yeah. things are gonna get better. And his point was like that's what you're supposed to be thinking because when you think both thoughts, y- you have to like move in ways that allow you to admit of both truths. Mm-hmm. And things like apocalyptic catastrophe thinking only admit of one truth, which is everything's bad and that's fine because we're fine if everything goes to hell. Yeah. But you have to be able to think it's been the worst catastrophe. Life is gonna be so hard, but also focusing on the hard, you know, is only one aspect of it. There's another aspect of it, which is what are we going to do to change public policy? Yeah. But the one dimensional thinking that you talked about kind of witnessing for, you know, in one area of fundamentalist Christianity is the same one dimensional thinking that the administration is perpetuating, which is right. Resilience thinking, right? Oh yeah. It's, we're gonna, we're gonna bounce back stronger than ever. It's like, no, we're not. Yeah. And, and the- that's okay. And that doesn't mean that we can't still make policy. In fact, we need to make policy Knowing that we're not going to bounce back stronger than ever,
1: right? The the goal is to prevent the next catastrophe. The, you know what right. I mean? Like our, <laughs> yes, our country right. would have been much better if we avoided the coronavirus pandemic.
0: Well, I the think pro- the other piece too is is um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm I'm getting excited.
1: Well, yeah, and, and the problem is like like you've mentioned that we don't we don't have the language to talk about you know for example strong institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, International scientific collaborations, like can can the Trump administration talk about that? No, the Trump administration can talk about um, you know us versus them, um, rigid hierarchies of power, dominance where you you beat your opponent into submission. But the actual um, institutions and policies that we would have needed to limit the devastation of this particular pandemic simply aren't there. And what I'm suggesting is you can find those throughout other different pressing social issues too.
0: Yeah, well, and I think too, and I'd love to, let's get to some of those pressing social issues because I don't wanna make the whole thing about me just having thoughts about pandemic, but this is a point, this is a point that I repeatedly have to, have to point out on college campuses is everyone loses their mind that we might have to teach, oh, we might have to be prepared to teach online and in person in the fall. And how on earth am I gonna write two whole classes? It's like the pandemic didn't do this. The pandemic pointed out where things are already weak. And um, those are in our social safety nets. Those are in the way, and somebody wrote a really great piece I wish I had in front of me about how the pandemic has shown that our K-12 public education system in America, the only thing ever holding it together was that physical classroom. And that if you take that away, you see how totally decrepit the system is. Mm. And so, so when we think about bouncing back stronger than ever and we think about resilience what that says to me is like oh if the pandemic had never happened things were going along quite ducky and that's just not true but we but of course you know a a conservative administration isn't going to want to look at oh the pandemic really points to like a huge problem in the social safety net we should probably i don't know like go back to the new deal or whatever right they they do not want to admit of those contradictions
1: yeah um I mean, the complicated thing, you mentioned paradox before. You know, rhetoricians are drawn to paradox. Um, I think a lot of scholars are, a lot of curious people are, right? Things that look one way on the surface, but beneath that um, appear much different. And before the pandemic, and the empirical evidence is clear and overwhelming, we were living in the richest, safest, healthiest, wealthiest moment in human history. Now, the last couple of years with the rise of, of deaths of despair have, have changed some of that in America, at least. But, I mean, things weren't going along, Would you say, ducky? Um, but in terms of a lot of broader metrics, uh huh, um, things were definitely moving in the right direction.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's a good point. You do kind of point that out in the book a little bit.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and
0: will you clarify what you mean, by the way, for deaths of despair? Because I think that's a new term for some people.
1: Yeah, so um, Angus um, Deaton um, and uh, Anne Case have written about this. And it's um, deaths of despair is a phrase used to describe declining uh, mortality rates, especially for uh, white working class Americans. And, you know, over this long trajectory, um, lifespans in America have grown. And, you know, a person born in 1950 will live longer than a person born in 1940, you know, and so on. But that has only changed, I think, since 2016, 2017, where increases in particularly opioid opioid overdoses, but also uh, increases in suicides hence deaths of despair, uh, particularly amongst white working class Americans, have for the first time in a really long time. Kind of curtailed, uh, increasing uh, uh, lifespans, and people are drawn to that for the the racial dimension, of course, um, but also because it's the first like significant empirically supported example of this like long term trend where things tend to get better over time. It's the first significant hiccup in that. Mm.
0: Hmm true you're right, you're right. I was and again, I think that this is one of those examples where we have to hold like how do we hold together that things were a problem, things were also getting better, things might get some stuff will get better from here, and some stuff also will can, and then this is like what what the rhetorical homology gives people is it gives people a way of thinking about all those things at once without without just going into analysis paralysis right and start thinking yeah. about like okay, if all that's true, how do we want to create policy
1: Yes yeah. And that's, I think that's what I hope is one of the takeaways from the book is um, with this critical tool, um, you know, with this lens that we can now see things uh, in a a richer way, you know, what do we do do with it? And Trump is just a wonderful case study in in how how we react. Um, There will always be Donald Trumps. There always have been. You know, he's, he's a, he's a carnival barker. He's a buffoon. He's a clown and that's fine. Right. But he can't control the levers of power. Like he does. He can have a reality TV show mm-hmm. and he can go on Howard Stern and whatever. But the problem is when he's in the white house. And so I, I draw, I try to draw on Kenneth Burke, um, probably the most prominent rhetorician of the 20th century who developed a comic frame and a tragic frame. And the, the comic frame I think is particularly helpful for understanding how we react to not just Trump, you know, cause Trump's going to be gone, but how, yeah. how do we react to, in this case, people that deploy that catastrophic language
0: Right which is tragic because it um it doesn't admit of like human folly, right yes. so when we say comedy, we don't mean funny because no. some of the this is, right we mean and I'm not telling you this, I'm telling the people listening <laughs> this right that the tragic and comic frames are two ways of looking at human error, and in the tragic frame, human error is flawed, it's faded by the gods, it's insurmountable, right very much like christian some Christian fundamentalist yeah. has to be in the in the in the comic frame doesn't mean stuff is funny. It means that we look at folly and human error as correctable, as contingent, as something that was made as a mistake and can be corrected. I mean, they're they're just different ways of looking at what it means sort of like for human beings to be flawed and for society to be flawed. So I'm just going to put that out there so everyone listening understands.
1: Yeah. That's a fantastic summary. Now take that- I love
0: love Attitudes Toward History. It's like one of my top 10
1: all-favorite rhetoric books. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Apply that to somebody like Wayne LaPierre, the president of the NRA. Or apply that to someone mm. like, uh, if you think about prominent Christian fundamentalist uh, redders like uh, you know Jerry Falwell, and he was alive, or James Dobson. Apply okay, that or I think to, Jordan
0: Peterson too.
1: Yes, yes. Apply that to Jordan. Which is extra
0: too. problematic because he's an academic, so he's got like the double, like the double cred to put to peddle this kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> yes, but of course we know, <laughs> we know that that is uh, sometimes. Uh, the, the connection to academia can be quite quite a ruse, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's the hope. Then is that you have a conceptual tool that you can apply to see some to see the messaging of someone like Jordan Peterson and Donald Trump more clearly. And so the 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 takeaway is, and, and kind of drawing on the comic frame as you as you uh, defined it so well, is. Um, Don't worry about uh, attributing, you know, their motives to to evilness. Mm -hmm. Um, Trump's not evil; he's a clown. Yeah, and he can be a clown uh, on on the sidelines as long as he's marginalized, as long as he's on reality TV and not guiding guiding public policy.
0: Well, I think this is hard, hard for people. And it's one of the things, you know, I talk about in in my book and some of my Trump work is like, you don't need to make this guy the second coming of evil to decide that his choices are shitty. Yeah. And I think people think that if they say things like, well, he just made a choice and he did. And if they treat him sort of like, just like a, like a person, then somehow that, that validates him. And it just isn't true. And as your book points out, you lose just as much i mean you don't gain anything by turning him into the second incarnate of evil except reinforcing to yourself that you hate this guy which you don't need to reinforce him you need to find new ways to think about what to do about his presence as a as a as a political figurehead
1: yeah and isn't that it's just it's so timely to have that discussion yeah. right now I and mean, we've been having it for a long time but with an election coming up in november we can't help but consider in a real urgent way, what's the best way to respond to this guy? Because yeah. we know over the next couple months, it's going to get darker and darker and more catastrophic and, and just crazy. I mean, you mentioned Obamagate earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does, how does one who cares about the vitality of American democracy, uh, respond to these just, just blatant breaches of norms and decorum and, and, and expectations? Um, and that's where yeah, that well,
0: idea Oh good. Oh no, I was just going to say another example and then we really should get back to the book cuz there's so much stuff. We haven't talked as nearly enough about the gun stuff. We talked a lot about Trump, but I, yeah. I understand that's that's just where our mind goes. Yeah. But yeah, there's a there's a hashtag t- trending on Twitter right this second, Trump has no plan. And you know, the argument is that he just doesn't have a plan for fighting coronavirus and it's like, no, he has a plan. That doesn't by by and we need to understand the plan. And not only does he have a plan for coronavirus, he also has a plan for systemic takeover of the courts that's going to last until 2060. I don't care who's in office the next 40 years. If he if he gets to appoint any more district and local Supreme Court judges, I mean, we are deeply screwed. So to say Trump has no plan feels good in the moment for people that want their pound of flesh, but it really just does not get at what is happening in a complex way. And I think that's the, I think that's the, one of the big features of this book is like, you can think someone has a plan or that something has a logic and not also validate it as being right.
1: Yeah. Or even, go even further. Maybe Trump doesn't have a plan. Fine. You know who does? Okay. Mitch McConnell and John Roberts oh. and Charles yes. Koch right? Yes. Mic drop, Luke.
0: Mic drop right there.
1: <laughs> they, and so maybe, I mean, that's why I think it's important, and you know this language really well, that we understand people like Trump and Wayne Lapierre and Jerry Falwell as texts. Yeah. They, yes. are, yeah. they are public oh figures, right? And I so, love the, this. The, I love
0: it.
1: which makes flesh. me think
0: now of a new Twitter hashtag, which is Mac- #hashtag McConnell has Trump's plan. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. and, and, see, yes. and see what happens. We go from this binary thinking of like, oh, the man has no plan, to actually getting what is happening. And you still don't have to validate everybody. And suddenly, like, language opens up. And yeah. and this is, I mean, rhetorical homology is a real gift for people. I think. Um, I don't know if you've considered pitching it to a popular outlet, um, timed with the with the book and everything happening. But this would be a great concept to bring to people in like popular news, like New York Magazine or something.
1: Mm, I you know, I cause will. I no. it's,
0: yeah, it's a crucial tool, and I mean, I hate to, see, I mean, I love it as a rhetorical concept, but I also love to see it as like just public discourse, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. So why don't we get back to some other case studies because, you know, we're 34 minutes in and we've hardly even hit uh, this fantastic, some of the fantastic stuff in this book. So is there any, um, is there any discourse or thinking about thinking of like public figures as texts or discourse or controversies as texts? Is there a particular one that you want to dig your teeth into?
1: Yeah. So we talked about Corona because it's timely and we talked about Trump because we just have to.
0: Because Trump. (laughs) Trump,
1: Yeah. But I think uh, gun violence is a good example. Yep. Let's um, go there. I love that. So we we'll use a. There's a chapter in the book where we basically analyze, look real closely at what we call um, gun gun rights uh, messaging, and it's um, a lot of it's from the NRA, National Rifle Association, but a lot of it's also from people like Sarah Palin and and even even from from Donald Trump. A lot of it's um, looking closely at the messaging that emerged in reaction to mass shootings. So when um, Sandy Hook uh, was uh, shot up and uh, I think 20 first graders died and uh, five or six teachers died, you know, how that's catastrophic and tragic and just terrible. And so how does a organization so committed to gun rights, like the NRA, respond to uh, an event like that. And, and draw, drawing you know, from several different examples of NRA messaging, I tried to make similar connections between their response, their catastrophic responses, their catastrophic contributions to these public conversations about guns, and this deeper catastrophic rhetorical aquifer i'll give you an example of what i mean when
0: oh please do i'm excited for this
1: when the prospect of a hillary clinton presidency loomed um the nra was basically licking their chops because they knew that uh, going from obama to hillary clinton would maintain momentum because it would, you know, stoke the anger of a lot of their primary audience. And you know, we use audience real specifically as a community drawn together by the messaging of the NRA, a community that wouldn't exist apart from that messaging. Um and the problem is Trump won, right? And because Trump won, and the anger dissipated and NRA membership dropped and kind of the fire and the fuel is has been sapped because that community, a community in this case, constituted by violent catastrophe, um, needs to define itself against a clear and present enemy. Without that enemy, it's harder to find that that coherent identity. I use, I use the example of um, a major gun manufacturer. That experienced um, a, a baffling um, uh, increase in their stock price after uh, Sandy Hook, because the weapon that we used at Sandy Hook was also the weapon produced by this gun manufacturer, um, and that that it's hard to talk about this, but this is the real dark underbelly of this catastrophic rhetoric that when uh, a weapon is used to kill young American children, that benefits the shareholders Mm -hmm. of of a private equity firm that owned the, 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 that, 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 the manufactured that gun. And that the same, same drawing the same comparison then to the NRA, that the NRA funding, you know, their donations and their membership increases after tragic events, after mass shootings, because it's a community uh, constituted by catastrophe.
0: I know, I know. It's, I mean, yeah, this chapter was one of those, like, so true and and, and insightful. It was like hard to read, right? Because it does feel a little bit um, it, does, it made it made me want to go into almost my own like liberal version of catastrophe rhetoric, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it, yeah, it, and it was, it was tough to write about the the but one I, the one. Uh, I mean, it was fascinating to link this to some of our earlier conversations. I remember, um, I think it was after the Parkland shooting in uh, in Florida, Donald Trump was giving a press conference. And in his press conference, he said something to the effect of, you know, you never know how you would actually react, but I'd like to think that I would have, I would have run into this school.
0: Right. This is the, Yes, this out. is the, I would have run in. Yes, I remember yeah. this press
1: conference. Because if y'all recall, the, the, um, the security guard ran away from the school or already hit or something like that. And he got a lot of heat from it. So Trump in the press conference was kind of comparing what that security guard did uh, to what he would have done. So think about that. So he's, he's uh, technically uh, obese. Uh, I think he's 72 or 73 now. He's got bone spurs that kept him out of Vietnam War. He doesn't exercise. He, he eats a lot of fast food. Um, he is telling the American public that he would have run into the school to face Nicholas Cruz in his AR-15 rather than run away from it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the point is not whether he would actually do that, right? Who cares? That's not the point.
0: Or whether I mean, he is, in fact, obese, which is a conversation we are currently having that I could not <laughs> care less about.
1: I know, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I know. She knows how, ro- how to rib him. He's, he's so concerned with image. I mean, I so I, I, part of me was period. like,
0: dude, Pelosi, you're better than this. And part of me was like, you know, I'm going to give this one to you. <laughs> earned
1: I, it. Know. <laughs> I wonder about that too. I mean, a bit of a tangent, but, but yeah, you, you wrestle with a pig in the mud, you get dirty and they like yeah, yeah. it. And yeah, I know Pelosi is so experienced that she knows that stuff, but sure. um, she had to just go, go with this one. But anyway, so, so we are interested in as people that are interested in improved public conversations is what is a, what does a man like Donald Trump get out of telling the world that he would do that? Mm. Not that he'd actually do it, but what type of identity is constructed in the utterance?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's where we are, we are so interested in how public words shape identity and how public words end up shaping public policy. Cause he got some sort of perverse satisfaction out of that. You know what I mean? Like that helped him. And helped cohere an identity for him and for his base. That I mean, can you imagine if Obama, or or if Hillary Clinton would have said something like that? It just it wouldn't have made any sense. They wouldn't have said it, and wouldn't have made any sense. But for him, right. with his identity attempting to hail a particular community into coherence, it was a powerful mm-hmm. message.
0: Yeah. Well, and it and it puts it puts into circulation all kinds of other truth claims including that um including that like it would work uh, right and they've done some interesting studies about uh they'll put like trained officers who Mm -hmm. have been right because one of the big arguments for for gun liberties is that oh we like we just provide training or the nra does this amazing public service by providing people with gun training uh but they've had like skilled law professionals and they put them under duress and have them go in and their accuracy is like not that much better than just a rando running through a building trying to disarm or shoot a, a, someone without killing a civilian. And so it puts into circulation this truth claim about our, our sense of reason, our ability to yes. think under stress that, that shores up all of this gun rights activism that just does not hold up to scrutiny, but it doesn't need to because Trump is the president and, and he has the ear of people who are looking for him to reinforce that all of these things are real.
1: Yes. And yeah. the the larger connection there from schools to just violence in general, bring a gun into your home. Your home immediately becomes less safe. And the empirical right. research is clear about that. Bring a gun into your home, or as you mentioned, bring a gun into a school, even for a trained professional, much less and a give, teacher. Give, right.
0: Give a teacher a gun and give them an online safety course. Yeah, right. right, right. Exactly.
1: But, and so, so you, you, you mentioned reason in your, in your description there. So it is unreasonable if you can, if you're concerned with you know keeping your family safe, uh, or more broadly, if you're concerned with less gun violence, mm-hmm. it is uh, unreasonable to bring a gun into your home, mm-hmm. right? It is, it is, it, from one perspective, irrational. Mm-hmm. But here's where the the important point is. Um, there's a missing warrant there. And sure. The mission right. warrant right. is you want to reduce gun violence. And, yes. and to link this back to the NRA, NRA doesn't want to reduce gun violence. The NRA doesn't want to reduce school shootings.
0: No, no, they not at more. all. Yes. Yes. Right. Because the NRA's warrant for is individuated, right? They're they are focused on is individual yes. gun, gun ownership, gun rights, gun purchase, gun consumerism, which of course then shores up co- corporate. Their, their warrant is not collective safety. Whereas, you know, that's like my point is, yes. I mean, and I thought about this with toilet paper. I know it's a stupid example, but when all the toilet paper panic happened, I was like sitting in my house, like, am I going to be the person who goes and buys up all the toilet paper? It's was like, no, <laughs> I was like, no, you know what? And it doesn't matter whether they're going to run out of toilet paper or not. And it wasn't even like I convinced myself that we didn't need to. I was just like, I'm just not going to. And sure enough, there were a couple of weeks there where I couldn't get my hands on toilet paper. I made it through. We won't go into details. But then then now people are trying to get like refunds on the $5,000 worth of toilet paper that they bought. And it just goes to show that like if you can just resist your base urges that that the, you know, of course, which is which if if, if you feel like my father and the NRA saturates 80% of your brain, like you never even learn how to do, you do start to see that these conspiracy narratives don't play out the way that you think they're going to. And and if one, per- yes, one person might have had a gun, might have defended their family against one robber one time somewhere, but that isn't even, a that's just not a warrant for collective mass availability of semi-automatic rifles. But yeah, but you're right. The NRA ideologically or consciously or intentionally or otherwise has a vested interest in mass shootings. Yeah. And the book- and the book lays this out so well.
1: Yeah. And it yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and <it's>, thank you. <laughs> it it to, to link back to what we talked about earlier, that 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 leaves us dispirited, but I hope it doesn't leave us paralyzed. Because the next no, logical no. question for, for us is for people that care about shared human progress, for people that want to reduce gun violence and reduce uh you know a warming planet is um, mm-hmm. How how do we react to this dominant part of our public conversations? Um, How do we, in in this specific case, how do we keep that catastrophic conversation from influencing public policy?
0: Well, and um, I don't know if you're planning on answering this question, but we haven't talked a lot about the anti-environmentalism that happens, ecological catastrophe. It's a big piece of the book. Mm -hmm. Do you want to maybe, as as we're kind of coming up on 45 minutes, think about like how do you keep moving forward and strategize amidst sort of like the, the doom and gloom while thinking about some of the arguments you make about environmentalism?
1: Yeah. So this, this is, that's a question that is, um, it's a fluid question. And if you follow, um, you know, survey data on how Americans feel about climate change or global warming, um, I, I, you know, there's some interesting uh, trends and interesting changes, but, one of the things that one part of that the survey data that is relatively consistent is even that even as people become more aware of climate change which they are and even as people become more aware that not only is the climate changing but it's going to be bad when it does which also seems to be the case there still is a Unwillingness or inability to make the next step, to take the next step and then support policies that will redress climate change. So think about that. We're aware it's happening. We're aware it's going to be really bad, but we're not willing to do anything about it. And so, what a suggestion the chapter on anti environmentalism is. Not a lot of people go around saying they want the planet to burn. Not a lot of people go around um, really directly articulating apocalyptic ecological references, especially in, you know, mainstream public conversations, right? You It'd be hard even now in the Republican Party to get elected by, you know, professing your desire to warm the planet. But, and here's where the value of the rhetorical homology comes in. Mm -hmm. If there is this deeper rhetorical aquifer that you and your community is drawing from, um, you can accept that climate change is happening and it's going to be bad and still not want to do anything about it. Um, and still, kind of hold together a coherent identity um, without feeling that, you know, cognitive dissonance that a lot of us do that actually motivates us to change mm-hmm. our behavior. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about like changing your light bulbs or driving a hybrid. That that's not it. Um, right. The the it's a it's a we need public policy interventions at a national and global scale. And so when we elect someone like Trump. Mick Mulvaney put this really well, former chief of staff of Trump. Um, He basically said that Trump's election means that we aren't going to worry about climate change, because if the American public was worried about climate change, they wouldn't have elected Trump. And he's exactly right. So that's the, the point of intervention, where we'd say that, yeah, climate change is happening. It's going to be bad. Yet we elect this bozo that thinks it's a Chinese hoax. Why? Because there's this deeper rhetorical aquifer, this Mm. catastrophic catastrophic aquifer that saps or paralyzes our political will to basically put two and two together. It's happening, but we don't really want to do anything about it. Why not? Because we have this kind of perverse but uh, consistent yearning for catastrophe. And it's yeah. particularly important for traditionally marginalized audiences. And we haven't talked about that, but I think that's a pretty important point here is that if you feel like you once had a firm grip on power, but you don't anymore, and now you know your world is a bit shaken, um, I argue that you're much more likely to be attracted to catastrophic rhetoric because catastrophic rhetoric is like, it's like a big reset button that the the you know all this devastating stuff is going to happen, economic and ecological and political.
0: yeah, but, I, there's been a bunch of stuff with this like uh, the apocalypse we wanted and the apocalypse we got stuff and this fantasies yeah. of apocalypse and all that jazz, and I'm always like, no oppressed minoritized person wants an apocalypse, because do you know what happens right. to women in the apocalypse? Yes, I'll tell you, it doesn't look good. So all you people running around talking about the when the wild, wild west returns and stuff, right? You're only ever the people who were in power in the first place. And often that is low lower socioeconomic yeah. class, white, cis men, right? Exactly. Because they're the ones who will survive in the apocalypse because they are historically the ones who have had the power before technology and, and so, social progress, you know, created a more, well, a leveler playing field. Yeah. 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 Great and- point.
1: And climate change in particular is it's like a sharp knife. And eventually it's gonna cut everyone. Yeah. But first, it's gonna right. cut uh the disempowered um yeah. and the most marginalized. And in at least in the short term, the traditionally empowered are are gonna be able to to manage it fine. Um and in and that's like the perverse attraction to this rhetoric is that if we do um reset hierarchies of power will we'll kind of thin the herd, if you know what I mean. And we'll, yeah, we'll see who is deserving and who is not.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's great stuff. And again, I, I have had to work really hard. Uh, I think you have to, to think about this stuff the way that we think about it and still feel like Because what other, what's the, like sitting around wallowing about how terrible everything is, is not productive. It might be true that things are getting worse, but I also am, and I think this is really important, like guilt is not a productive emotion. So for people listening who aren't, who aren't relative positions of power, I mean, you're not the 1%, but you might be the top 50%. uh, and, And if you look at the poverty threshold, most of us are well above it listening to this podcast right now, sitting around feeling guilty and bad is exactly what helps conservatism and and catastrophe rhetorics keep moving forward, right? You have to have sort of like some kind of maybe I don't know dark optimism. I'm not sure what the word is here, but um, but but you need to resist the guilt that is just that is not a, a productive and it's not it's optional. The guilt is optional. Right? Take response. Your 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 greatest emotional asset is responsibility. That is the word you want. You need to take responsibility. You need to be responsible and responsive. You don't need to feel guilty. You also didn't, don't need to feel sunshine and rainbows, um, but, but there are things you can do, and your job is to get, get doing those things, right? Yes.
1: yes, that's very well said. And the, the optimistic strand is that we can look back at, uh, at, at American history, particularly in, in the 20th century, and we can see how strong institutions mm-hmm. improved American lives. Absolutely. Like you said, not everyone, not equally. It's not like there's a level playing field. That's, that's not but, what I'm saying.
0: But on the whole. But on balance. On the whole. Yeah.
1: On the whole. And catastrophe attempts to destroy institutions so that we can return to this Darwinian survival of the fittest. And I love how you put that. Don't let the guilt paralyze you. If If this leaves you feeling... You know, if if your Twitter feed and and if the headlines leave you feeling uneasy, channel that unease into some uh, productive avenue. And the productive avenue for what I I argue is um, rehabilitating and developing strong institutions that can Mm -hmm. prevent catastrophe rather than accelerate it.
0: Yeah, and, and I think another thing, that you, it's sort of a sub-thread of the Christian fundamentalism chapter, is one of the cool things about rhetoric um, is, that, is that sometimes you can repurpose discourses for new purposes, and I think that's what like, really astute rhetoricians for social change have done. And, and one, of the, one of the things about the catastrophe fundamentalist kind of thinking is that it's often paired with a kind of longevity community orientation. And if you can tease out the, the, the community, common good longevity orientation from the catastrophe, one of the things that we can talk about is that most people think about climate change in terms of their lifetime. And if you think about it like that, of course it doesn't feel particularly uh, like you could, you know, because you're not thinking about long term. But one thing I will say that religion has over secular society is a focus on the long term. And so you can also uh, use, you can play some of these logics against each other to try to, uh, you know, to get again to use Burke to like reorganize the value system of people that are in your sphere of influence. Like I, I, I very often will try to reorganize it my father's values around gun control because he has multiple competing values, and my job as a progressive is to try to get him to recognize that like one of his values is trumping. You know, there's a word I don't want to use anymore. <laughs> um, a value that he also holds. And so trying to bring that other value so it has more, it gets more airtime in his brain.
1: Mm, that's good. That, and it reminds me of a, a similar story um, featuring a, a climate scientist at Texas Tech named Catherine mm-hmm. Hale, who mm-hmm. her father was a climate change denier. And she is a, a climate scientist. And she just banged her head against the wall for years and years and years. Trying to convince her own father that climate change was real and that it was happening and it was going to be bad and they should all do something about it. So, I mean, just think about those conversations. She's a climate scientist, PhD professor at Texas Tech. She goes home for Thanksgiving and there's her father who basically repudiates her life's work. And she said that she used to dump all kinds of like computer models and graphs and scientific evidence on none of that worked and at one point she was fed up and this was some holiday dinner they were having she she played the personal connection card and said you know dad i understand why you may not agree with al gore but i'm your i'm your daughter and this is my life's work don't you trust me and as she's telling the story, she basically said that it you know, didn't happen right away, but over the next you know, couple weeks, that whole, you know, don't you trust me led mm-hmm. to complete re- reorientation in, in her father's thinking. And so I think that's, without getting too individualistic, I think that's an interesting story because it mm-hmm. emphasizes the role of um, trust in community. And yeah. so much of catastrophic rhetoric is built on us and them. Built on developing yeah, others, yeah. mar, you know, marginalizing them, so that so much of Trump's rhetoric is built on that. So that one way to remedy that or to come back against it is to try to expand the parameters of your community, um, so that people that you, you may disagree with, like we talked about earlier, maybe they're not evil, right. maybe they are misguided, maybe they're ignorant, but you can fix ignorance. you you can't fix evil. And so if you have that approach in this case, like, you know, your family members, but even beyond that people that, uh, you might see in sort of an us them relationship. If you view the relationship as one, of you know, you know, where, where you can, uh, where you don't dismiss them because they are fundamentally evil, uh, it can lead to much more productive conversations and then much more productive, like, a bounds of community.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Well, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, this is one of the disappointing things about these interviews is that these books are so good and you barely get to skim the surface. Um, but we are coming up on, on time. And number one, my neighbor has decided to mow his lawn for the third time today. Uh, so I just wanted to give you a chance. Is there anything in the book that we didn't cover that you really think it, you really want to make sure the audience takes away with them before we wrap?
1: There's one useful touchstone. And again, to, to help us understand our more current historical moment, uh, I draw on, um, uh, like, uh, Star Wars and the Polar Express and the Emperor with no, no clothes, these cultural touchstones that, um, all kind of lead up to this idea that, um, Belief is the price of admission. Let me see if I can unpack that in a more more helpful way. Um, Mm -hmm. Public policy that improves people's lives needs to be evidence-based. But in a post-truth world, where for particular communities, evidence means little, entrance into that community is predicated upon Uh, an expressed um, disbelief in expertise. And the result, of course, is a a president, but more broadly a a party and a a political community that wields tremendous influence on public policy without the help of expertise and evidence and and data. And and, And I think understanding that is so important to improving our public conversations, right? So Lee and I, you and I are, are, are communication scholars and we're interested in using better words to improve people's lives.
0: Hashtag we, use your words.
1: <laughs> use your words. <laughs> is that Daniel Tiger?
0: Um, I know, I think it is, but it's like great advice that no one listens to after they're about three years old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I, I think we... We are going to struggle to have productive conversations across the political spectrum if we don't recognize how um, evidence, truth, expertise has been reoriented as a community defining characteristic. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I did an interview a couple of months ago with uh, Leslie Honor and Heather Woods, and they wrote a, a hilariously titled book, Make America Meme Again. Yes and it's all about trump's campaign trump's 2016 campaign and the role of memes and right anti evidence in online um, sort of like subversive online what they call like lulz community which is kind of like these ironic trolly kind of message board sort of people and and yeah exactly what you're talking about how we forget that evidence, right that evidence or what you think of evidence or how you think of expertise or what counts as expertise these become new New guardians for who belongs where and what what kind of what kind of knowledge penetrates their aquifer, yeah. right?
1: That's yeah. a good way to put it. The kind of kind of guardians at the gate, like it, the price of admission.
0: Yeah, exactly, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. And again, this is one of those books that um, every chapter was better than the last chapter. It it all kind of leads to a couple of really strong takeaways which made it a great read and also it brought some things to light ways of thinking about popular issues that i hadn't considered before so i highly recommend it Uh, again i've been interviewing luke winslow author of american catastrophe fundamentalism climate change gun rights and the rhetoric of donald j trump from ohio state university press and i'm so excited to announce that the great and wonderful ohio state university press has been gracious enough to provide temporary uh, for the pandemic free access to books, including American Catastrophe, through their BiblioVault scholarly repository. And if you are um, not part of an institution that has access, the book is very reasonably priced as an electronic version. And I love, love to recommend that if you have the means, grab a copy of the book, uh, take it to your local library, and put it into circulation so that lots of people can get access to this work, and also you can support the university presses that don't make very much money, um, and I don't know if you know this, but um, academic authors make almost nothing on these books, but we want work like Luke's to get out there, and we want it to get out there with the kind of attention and skill that only university presses can provide. So with that, Luke, do you want to say anything about where everyone um, can get in touch with you or what kinds of projects you're working on now?
1: Well, first, let me say thank you for those kind words, Lee. That was very that was very nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> I wrote an op-ed in the Waco Tribune that came out last week. Um, If people are interested in seeing how the arguments in this book, the arguments that we just talked about, are more directly connected to the corona pandemic, um, they can find that op-ed. It's uh, wacotrib.com. I'm actually not on – this is something I need to redress as as I try to jump out publicity here. I'm not on social media. Um, so the best way to email me, the uh, best way to get a hold of me would be to, be to email me you know? uh-huh. yeah, at, uh, Winslow Luke at gmail.com. So my last name and my first name, Winslow Luke at gmail.com. Um, and in terms of current projects, uh, yeah, I'm working on a, a third book on, um, uh, it's called American oligarchy and Ooh. the twilight of liberal democracy. Ooh. And what I'm trying to do is, uh, in, in some ways it's connected to this. What we've just been talking about um I'm trying to uh get us to think deeply about the value of the words we use to describe our economic and political relationship, particularly words like neoliberalism and conservatism and libertarianism seem to be unable to explain the dominance of people like the the Koch brothers um on our political economy so that's a book that um is 110,000 words right now it's way too long and so i'm in kind of the process of chopping that down and and polishing that up but that is a project that i'm really excited about
0: well that's great um yeah and as a person who reads a ton of books i always say um they're ultimately all going to boil down to this our interview (laughs) so so, uh anything we didn't talk about in this interview theoretically (laughs) didn't need to go in the book so Ah, uh, being a public intellectual has really taught me a lot about um, playing a little faster and looser. But uh, maybe you got two books there. Who knows, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, and I did I, find. I read... Go ahead.
1: Well, I read a a, a writer say that um, you know a good writer can make it look easy, but that's only because the writer has basically cut out all the crap. And so, you know, if you have one hundred and ten thousand words, maybe you actually have forty thousand words that are are worthwhile.
0: Well, actually, interestingly enough, have you ever heard the writing advice "kill your darlings"?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: so most people most people think that that means kill off your favorite main characters, but it actually originated meaning kill off the sentence, like delete the sentences you think are the best because they're often just like overly inflated, right? And so I always thought that was funny because a lot of us just we get we get very attached yes. to our sentences. Um, is to the that name point, of Let your, me
1: recommend. So let hard. me recommend a book. Um, oh, that I love, really yes. I'm going to write this down.
0: What do you uh, got? Joe
1: Morin, Moran, M O R A N wrote a short little accessible book and it's called first you write a sentence. First you oh, write cool. a sentence. And he talks about killing your darlings and he, um,
0: Oh, so you knew, Oh, so you were already but, uh, up on my pro tip. Oh, dang. I got to get some that, material. It,
1: that book, uh, he shows you like, not just why to do it, but how and it's lovely, not just for academics, but for anyone who wants to improve their, you know, written communication. Oh, I will I'd check it out. I'm always
0: looking it. to become a better writer, even though, um, I, you know, I'm, to most people, I'm probably really good. But to me, it's it's just one of those never-ending crafts.
1: Yes.
0: Did you, is the name of your, is it March 28th editorial, Just What We Need in a Pandemic Crisis for Waco Trib? Is that you? No,
1: no. mine. Okay, good, because your uh,
0: name is nowhere on this thing. <laughs>
1: Mine came out, uh, it was Sunday before last. I oh, it's real new. Right. Okay,
0: I'll keep looking for it because um, I just wanted to let readers know I will link to the show notes. Um, and uh, do you want to say anything else? Because I just, I want to be respective of their time and also the lawnmower. So uh, <laughs> any, any final thoughts before we say goodbye?
1: I think that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, and Luke, I can't thank you enough. I can't imagine what a trial and tribulation getting through this book was, not only for the the quality of the writing, but also just the depth of the complexity of the ideas and some of the like we have talked about doom and gloom moments and you've brought something really valuable to the world and thank you for coming on and doing this interview. We appreciate it so much.
1: Thanks for having me. Yep.
0: All right, listeners. It was great chatting again. Um, this is Luke Winslow and the book American Catastrophe fresh off the presses 2020. Definitely check it out. And we will see you in the next episode of new books. Network.